tiny little town in Austria. Now what I am about to say does not have the authority of scripture. And there are some who say it's apocryphal and not true. But I still like the story, so I'm going to tell it. Joseph Moore was concerned. He was walking home from visiting a young couple who had just had a child. And it was dark, and in those days they didn't have street lights. So he looked over his little town. concerned because the next morning was Christmas and there had been promised some music for Christmas except their organ was broken. It would literally be weeks before the repairman could come and repair the organ. And so what do you do? There's no piano. What does Danielle do? And so he wrote words, which sounds something like this. Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht, alles schlaft, einsam wacht, nur das Trade hoch heilige Paar, holder Gnab in lockigen Haar, schlaf in himmlischer Ruhe, schlaf in himmlischer Ruhe. Translation's a little bit different than that. He gave those words to his organist who also composed music. Franz Gruber wrote the tune, the same as we sing it now. And for all those who lived through the days when guitars in church were absolutely forbidden, I want you to know that the first time Silent Night was ever played, it was accompanied by a guitar. So, Danielle, do you think we could get Tom to play for us on the first verse? Let's sing the first verse of Silent Night that Danielle will join in and we'll make sure we're still on the right key, okay? Alright, Silent Night. Oh, yeah. 
It is good to see all of you here. We'll have to remember all the folk that are out traveling. One of the things that I do like about this season of the year is it gives folks an opportunity to get together with their loved ones. And that part of this particular holiday I do like. We're going to continue in First Peter this morning. But before we do, since this is December 25th, 2017. No, it's December 24th, 2017. It is Christmas Eve today, and so I feel like it's almost incumbent on me to say something that recognizes that fact. We've sung Christmas songs this morning, and every year, ever since the uh, teaching that I did many, many years ago, it was so long ago I had hair. That'll give you some idea how long ago it was. I taught on the traditions of Christmas. And every year around this time, that teaching scatters around the internet and shows up on YouTube again and goes crazy all over the place. And so as a consequence, I have a reputation as being a real Scrooge. And and I'm not. I'm a Grinch, maybe. But I'm not Scrooge. You know that I believe, as far as Christmas is concerned, that this is a great opportunity for each and every one of us to demonstrate our Christian conscience. And you have freedom of conscience before God. Whatever your conscience allows, if that's decorating or lights or or any of that, if you were to invite me to your house and there were presents under the tree... I would not get upset and storm out and call you a pagan or yell at you that you're a heretic. Unless one of the presents are for you. As long as one of the presents is for me. Correct. But at the same time, part of what it is to have a Christian conscience is also being allowed to say no to things and having the freedom to say no. And so I've just chosen not to get involved with all of the trappings of Christmas In my neighborhood right now, as we drove around the other night looking at Christmas lights and Christmas displays, I was really taken by the complete lack of reference to the birth of Christ in most of the displays that I saw. I did see a Christmas cactus with a Santa Claus hat. That exists in my neighborhood. I did see a giant inflatable duck in a Christmas hat. Yeah, I did see plenty of snowmen and reindeers and lots of twinkling colored lights. Not a lot of reference to Christ. When there is a reference to Christ, it's usually a babe in a manger. You know, I get frustrated with the manger scenes because far too often the wise men are in the manger, which biblically is completely incorrect. But they they kind of feel that they need to get the wise men in there. There were not three wise men. We get that idea, that tradition from the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. So there's a whole lot of tradition that's piled into it. I think I told you that last year in my neighborhood, there was a manger scene with Mary and Joseph and the child and the shepherds and the wise men and Santa Claus for some reason. (laughs) Also kneeling down, worshiping the baby. I think the reason that people like that tradition is because they like the idea that Jesus is just a baby. And they can handle the idea of baby in a manger. 
They can handle that idea because baby in a manger is not at all threatening. Baby in a manger looks kind of pathetic, kind of poor. Gee, it's a shame. He was born in a manger around animals. He really didn't have much. He doesn't seem to have any power or authority. And and therefore, I don't have to really respond to him or do anything that he says. But that's not who he is. One night, out of all human history, one night, he was a baby in a manger. Before that, he was Lord of glory. And then he was a baby in a manger for a night. And then he went back to being Lord of glory. Even during his lifetime, while he was on the planet, he demonstrated over and over again that he was so much more than a baby in a manger. Now, the apostles who wrote the New Testament for us and all of the prophets who are recorded in the Old Testament, among them all, you don't see one reference to the day he was born. We do see the story of his birth, but nobody tells us the date. Nobody tells us the calendar date that he was born. Why? Because it just was not important to them. They told us about his death. They told us what day he died. They were very specific about it because his death fulfilled the spring feast. He died on Passover. He was put in the grave on unleavened bread. He rose the first day of first fruits, and 50 days later, Pentecost came around and the Spirit fell. He satisfied the first four spring feasts. That was really, really important because all of the prophets had prophesied it that way. So it was absolutely necessary that he come to the planet and fulfill those particular prophecies. But his birth, they didn't say anything about what day he was born. So as we all know, traditionally, it comes down to December 25th. And I won't get into all the history of why that is. I will just emphasize the same thing that... Kellen emphasized, as he read today, you know, Kellen and I did not conspire. I did not call him on the phone and say, oh, by the way, I'm going to be reading out of Revelation 19 this morning. He just stood up here and read out of Revelation 19. Why? Because providence works. Because the same spirit that drove me to talk about this drove him to talk about this. But if you look at the way he is described A mere 60 years after his death, when John is on the Isle of Patmos, John sees visions of Christ, and he is not a babe in a manger. When Peter, John, and James were taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Elijah and Moses had to do obedience to Christ, where a voice from heaven said, this is my son, in whom I'm well pleased here him and then Moses and Elijah are gone, that was not a babe in a manger. That was an all-powerful Lord, Savior, Master, God incarnate. When John was on Patmos reading from Revelation 1.9, John writes, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos, Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna. Hold your applause. (laughs) 
and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it is made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Well, yeah, that's the proper response to the Lord of glory. Nobody's falling down like a dead man in front of baby in a manger. I think that's why they prefer baby in a manger. That's why they're okay with baby in a manger. But when the Lord of glory shows up, people fall down like dead men in front of him. When I saw him, I fell down at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and I am the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The church itself is in the very hand of the Lord of glory. He is not any longer a baby in a manger. One time, one night in all of human history, he was a baby in a manger. These days we read of him what we read in Revelation 19.11. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and he wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's who we're worshiping. That's who we have to deal with. That's the one who humbled himself to come to this planet and be born as a baby in a manger. 
but who has died, who is resurrected, who is exalted to this state. So when you sing these Christmas songs, and when you see these Christmas pageants, and when you see these lit up displays on your neighbor's yard with Santa bowing down and worshiping a baby in a manger, remember that that's not who he is anymore. Who he is is the absolute authority, the absolute omnipotent God, the speaking agency that spoke all things into existence. He is the very Lord of Lords, the very one who is going to decide your eternal fate, the very one who either died for you and paid your sin debt entirely, who is sitting at the right hand of God interceding for you, or he is the judge of the universe who is going to condemn you and send you into outer darkness. That's who we're dealing with. So don't forget that. Let's turn to 1 Peter. Thus ends the Christmas message. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas Eve. We are in 1 Peter, and we are all the way to verse, well, we're to a verse that actually begins with the word therefore. Verse 13, therefore, and you really can't start anything on therefore. It would be impossible to have a conversation with somebody if you walked up and said, therefore, you need to go and do this and that. So we have to go back and see what the therefore is therefore. And this is the beginning of Peter's imperative. He has already laid out his indicative. He has already said who we are in Christ. He has already said how it is that we are saved. He has already described the electing grace and foreknowledge of God that has brought us to salvation. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with the theological concepts that help us understand how salvation came about. He doesn't end there. He lays that all out and then says, therefore, be like this. Therefore, act this way. Therefore, gird your loins because you're going to get busy. So let's start reading at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. And when we get to verse 13, we'll understand what the therefore is therefore. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. Some of your translations will say who are elect who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation 
ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you did not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Therefore, now do you know what the therefore is about? Knowing everything God has done for you, understanding his electing grace and his foreknowledge and how he has sent his son and how he has inhabited you with his spirit. Seeing that there is a heavenly inheritance set for you that is imperishable and doesn't fade away. And knowing that you yourself are protected by the very power of the Almighty. Then you rejoice even though you have to go through troubles and difficulties in this life. And though you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And this salvation of your souls that God has worked out is something that even the prophets and the angels looked into because they wanted to know what time, what person, what events were the prophets prophesying as they spoke by the Spirit of Christ. And yet they realized that they weren't speaking for themselves, they were prophesying for you. They were prophesying toward the people who would be within the new covenant, the people who God would be saving through the finished work of Christ. All of that leads to the word, therefore. Now, if he had stopped right at verse 12, we could rightly say that Peter was most interested in the doctrine. He really just wanted you to know the doctrine. And once you had the doctrine down and understood that you were saved by and through and in knowing the doctrine, he would have stopped right there. But he doesn't. He goes on to say, now get busy. Here's what he says. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Some of your um, translations will say, gird up the loins of your mind for action. What that means is, in the old days in Rome, when folks were wearing togas, or when folks were wearing typical battle gear, it included some loose clothing in the front, and that made it difficult to run. And so when you were going to be running or going into battle, you would take that loose cloth and put it up into your belt. You would gird it into your girder, up into your belt, so that you were free to run, free to attack. 
Peter picks up that language and says, knowing all this that God has done for you, now gird up the loins of your mind. Now take hold of your thinking, take hold of your mind, and get ready for action. Get ready because the battle is coming, and you need to be girded up for it. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Be sober. Now the NASB says be sober in spirit. The words in spirit are added by the translators, but I think that's what he's getting at. He's saying keep your wits about you because this Christian journey is not always going to be easy and there's going to be plenty of resistance. And there still is resistance to the things that we know and that we believe. We take that out into the marketplace of ideas. We take that out into the world and people push back on us all the time and hate us for the fact that this is what we believe. So you've got to be ready for that. Peter is saying, be ready. Be ready for action. Gird up your mind. Be sober. Think rightly. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Anybody here in this room got that down? Because we are all just naturally, fleshly legalists. Everybody wants to think that they either did something that was good enough that God is going to approve it, or... Inversely, that we've done something so bad that there's just no way God can forgive us. How could God possibly love a wretch like me? And so Peter says, rather than swinging the pendulum either direction, rather than thinking, well, I'm good enough or thinking I'm bad enough, he says, gird up your mind, think soberly, so that the thing you're thinking about all the time is grace, 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 grace. Because it all comes down to grace. If it's grace, then you aren't good enough. If it's grace, you can't be good enough to impress God. Because if God gave you a payment based on how good you were, that's a debt. And that's not grace. So grace eliminates the boasting that would say, well, me, I, look at me, I did something, I'm good enough. I, no, grace. It has to be grace. But grace is also the answer to God can't love somebody like me. I'm so bad. We rehearse in our own minds the things we've done and the places we've been and the mistakes that we've made and the times that we've fallen short. All our sins are constantly before us. And the devil sits on our shoulder saying, remember all those things you did? Remember all those places you went? Well, you're going to be condemned. He's up in heaven condemning the brethren night and day. And usually when he's up there making his case against us, he's pretty much got us dead to rights. I mean, we really are that guilty. And if you sit and think about that, if you really ponder that for a while, I really am this wretched, I really am this sinful, I really have done these things, and worse, Satan is in front of God saying, did you see that? Well, if you think about that for too long, it's going to make you crazy. 
It's going to make you fear that there's just no way that you're going to make it to heaven. It will make you despondent. So don't do it. Set your mind on grace. It's grace. It's all grace. It's constant grace. It's always grace. Look at the way Peter said it. Fix your hope completely on grace. Fix your hope. You know what fix means? We live here in the South. My neighbor, when I moved all those years ago to Smyrna for the first time, very, very Southern guy, looked a lot like Gomer Pyle. And, and I went out one day, and he had his car up on jacks. And I said to him, what are you doing, Ray? And he said, and I quote, I'm fixing to fix my brakes. <laughs> and I said, well, call me when the actual fixing starts, and I will come help you. What he means by fix here is fasten. The same way that if you want to stick something sticky onto something else, you say that you're fixing it to it. Well, that's the way the word is being used here. Fix your thinking. Fix your mind. Fix your complete hope on grace. The grace that is to be brought about at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I have to mention how frequently Peter brings this up, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ. What is going to happen at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Verse 7 says that. There's going to be praise and glory and honor at the revelation, the unveiling, the apocalypsis, at the unveiling of Christ. And here in verse 13, have that complete hope in the grace that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I am convinced that Peter like most of the New Testament authors, expected that Jesus was going to be back quite soon, that he was going to probably be back in their own lifetime, and that he was going to accomplish all the things that he was sent to accomplish by the prophets. He was going to set up the kingdom. He was David's greater son who was going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. He was going to throw off the yoke of Rome. Jerusalem was finally going to become the capital of the world. All these things that are predicted by the prophets, they were expecting to happen very quickly. Think about it for just a moment. Uh, I am, hang on for just a moment, I have to choke through this, 62, and what if Christ had come back 70 years ago? What if he had come back 2,000 years ago? What if he had come back 30 years after he left? Well, then what hope do I have? Instead, he had me in mind. I was also chosen before the foundation of the world, as you were. And because you were already in God's mind, God has taken the time that it's taken to hold his son at his right side until the time when he's going to send his son to come get the church. And after he comes to get the church, then God is going to return his attention back to Israel, and he's going to keep absolutely every promise that he's ever made to Israel nationally. It's just that Peter thought it was going to happen right away. And so he says things like the revelation of Jesus Christ in this sort of immediate fashion. So knowing that you have kept your mind sober, you have girded up your mind, you have fixed your hope completely on grace, then he says that you should be obedient. Now, this is the part of the gospel that I struggled with for a long time because I came out of a very, very legalistic background. Can I get a witness, Tom? Okay. We came out of a really, really legalistic background, and so when I 
got here and heard about grace and understood the grace of God as the answer to all my problems and dilemmas, I swung the pendulum way over to the grace side. I really didn't know what to do with the passages in the Bible that talked about obedience, that talked about doing work. And I didn't know how to present it. I didn't know how to read the Gospels fully orbed the way they're written because I was concerned that if I started talking about obedience, somebody was going to accuse me of legalism or any number of things that fly around on the Internet these days when anybody says, be obedient. But Peter here has said, be obedient, and he has put it in the right place. What I mean by that is that in the course of his theological development, as he's laying out his case, he has already laid out all of the indicatives. Who you are has already been laid out. You are elect. You are chosen by God. You have been saved. Christ did die for you. God foreknew you. You are already a person who has an inheritance in heaven that's undefiled, that's not going to fade away. Okay, so salvation is secure for you. So your obedience is not for the purpose of getting you saved. And once I got that, once I understood that, then I was much more comfortable with the idea of you are saved, now be obedient. It all made sense to me now. Why? Because I could compare it with my own relationship with my own kids. They are my kids. They're always going to be my kids. There's nothing you can do about it. Nan and nanny boo boo on you. They're my kids. I don't expect obedience from them because I want them to be obedient and gain my love. I do love them. I'm not expecting their obedience so that I will act favorably toward them. I do act favorably toward them. They're my kids. But as a consequence of the fact that they're my kids and I love them and I'm favorable to them, I expect obedience. Well, God then calls himself Father. And in a moment, Peter is going to bring that up. You refer to him as father. So then you ought to be obedient to him, not because you're trying to convince him to save you, but because you recognize the reality that he has saved you. Therefore, because you love him, then you're going to be obedient to him. I know that the reason my kids are obedient to me is because they love me. That's the relationship. And that's the relationship between us and God, recognizing that because he loved us first, we love him in response. He has saved us by his grace. Therefore, we are obedient to him to demonstrate to him how much we love him. Once I got that figured out, I had no more theological difficulty with preaching the entirety of the New Testament the way it's written. I have no problem with the fact that Peter's about to say, now be obedient children. Well, yeah, of course we should be. I can't imagine anything else. I can't imagine that Christ would die for you, that God would send his Holy Spirit, put him in you, then it's okay for you to run around and be disobedient and act like nothing has changed. Act as sinful as you've ever acted. I can't imagine that that's the case. So Peter says this, therefore, gird your minds for action, be sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts. So what does that mean? You used to be a certain way. You used to act a certain way. Those were your former lusts. Here, I'll put it this way. I used to, I can probably pick anybody in this room and you'll agree with this, but I used to go places and do things that I just can't go anymore and can't do anymore. And it's not just because I'm too old and crotchety to do those things. It's because I can't in my mind allow myself to do those things anymore. And I didn't decide it. I didn't change my mind. I didn't wake up one day and go, you know, Jim, you ought to be better. You ought to stop doing that stuff. The truth is, I liked that stuff. After my flesh, I enjoyed that stuff. That's why I did it in the first place. Because I like all that, those former lusts. And so Peter says, now, having been redeemed, having been elected, having been blood-bought, having been filled with the Spirit, gird up your mind, be sober in your thinking, and be obedient children, and don't be conformed to those former lusts. Because the former lusts aren't the way the people of God ought to act. So now Peter's talking about your activity. Don't be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, okay, there's your comparison, like the Holy One who called you. Okay, how holy is God? Massively holy, right? Can anybody limit the holiness of God? Anybody want to put parameters on that? Holy God. So now like the Holy One who called you, Be holy yourselves also in your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Okay, that ought to scare the beejeevers out of you. Because God now, who is completely, completely holy, who is the totality of what holiness is, who is absolutely enveloped through and through with holiness, says, and Peter quotes it, be holy. And what's the inspiration? Because I'm holy. And that ought to worry you, because I know one thing about me, I'm not holy. Especially if by holiness you mean absolute moral perfection. Because God is absolutely morally perfect. And I'm not. So here's a command from God. Be holy because I'm holy. And my problem is I'm not holy. Anybody in the room want to raise your hand and say, yeah, me, I'm holy. I'm good. No thanks. No thanks? No holy guys here? No? I am in Christ. You are in Christ. What you have is an imputed righteousness but are you willing to say you're morally perfect? No. That's a big problem, isn't it? If the comparison is God's moral perfection, is there anybody who can say that they are actually holy? Well, here I'm going to let you off the hook. Because what Peter is talking about is behavior. He isn't saying be morally perfect. 
he's quoting from Leviticus. In fact, you can turn to Leviticus 11 if you'd like. He's quoting from Leviticus the phrase, you shall be holy for I am holy. And it shows up a couple times in the Levitical writing. And in every place where it's quoted, it is always in regards to behavior. Every time. And so Peter picks it up and says, be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because he knows you can't be morally perfect. What you can be is obedient children. What you can be is somebody who girds up the loins of their mind. What you can be is somebody who thinks soberly, places their hope completely in the grace of God, and then adjusts their behavior accordingly. Here, I'll prove it to you. Are you in Leviticus 11? We're going to start at verse 41. This is in a really strange passage of Leviticus that has to do with swarming things that swarm on the earth. Here's what it says. Now every swarming thing that swarms on the earth is detestable, not to be eaten. Whatever crawls on its belly and whatever walks on all fours, whatever has many feet in respect to every swarming thing that swarms on the earth, you shall not eat them, for they are detestable. Do not render yourselves detestable through any swarming things that swarm. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with them so that you become unclean. So this is about don't eat unclean bugs. And I'm with that. I'm totally into don't eat unclean bugs. And in that context, God then says, for I am the Lord your God consecrate yourselves therefore now I have to point out that the Hebrew word that is being translated consecrate is kodesh consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy and that again is the word kodesh same Hebrew word be kodesh for I am kodesh therefore kodesh yourselves how do you kodesh yourselves by not eating Bugs that are unclean. That's the context of God saying, be holy because I'm holy. So it helps us to understand that the word Kadesh means separate. And I said that to you, I think last week or the week before, that early on when Peter writes of God the Father, who has given you the sanctifying work of the Spirit, I said that sanctification work is the work of making you separate. And I said, hold on to that, tattoo it to your brain so that you remember it later on. Well, now it's a couple weeks later, and I hope you remember it because that's what Peter is talking about, your separateness from the world, not acting like the world, acting differently. So God then goes on after saying, be Kodesh, for I am Kodesh, and you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean and between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. So this entire context 
is about what you can eat and not eat in order to make yourself ceremonially clean or ceremonially unclean. And if you keep yourself clean and don't eat unclean things, God puts that in the context of be holy because I'm holy. Isn't that interesting? Here, he does it again. Leviticus 19, turn over there. The Lord spoke to Moses. Are you there? I still hear pages flipping and people punching their gadgets. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Every one of you shall reverence his mother and father. Wait, now holiness has to do with reverencing your father. I'm not holy. Not holy? Okay. Okay. I was just checking. Look at the context. The context is about keeping one of the commandments. That you reverence your mother and your father. Be holy. I'm holy. Listen to your mom and dad and reverence them. That's what holiness looks like in that context. Every one of you shall reverence his mother and father And you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols and make for yourself molten gods. I am the Lord your God. So keeping Sabbath is a way that they could show that they were separate. That they were a holy people. By not having idols like all the surrounding nations. In that way they were holy in keeping the commandments, in following after God, in honoring their father and mother. In that way, they were being holy. They were being separate. They were being Kodesh. It happens again in Leviticus 20. We'll start reading right at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, You shall also say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel, or from the aliens sojourning in Israel, who gives any of his offspring to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Molech so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. If the people of the land, however, shall ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Molech so as to not put him to death, then I myself shall set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut off from among the people both him and all those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Molech. As for the person who turns to mediums or to spiritists, To play the harlot after them, I will also set my face against that person, and I will cut him off from among his people. You shall consecrate, again Kodesh, yourself therefore, and be Kodesh, holy, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord that Kodesh you. So he said, consecrate yourselves which means keep yourself ceremonially clean. Don't be like the other people around you. Don't be like the Gentile nations. Don't chase after the foreign gods. Don't go and and prostitute yourself with the foreign gods. And be, Kadesh, holy, for I am the Lord your God. You'll keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord God who, Kadesh, sanctifies you, separates you. 
So God, the perfect, righteous, holy one, gave them laws and commands about how they should act for the purpose of making them separate from the other nations. And in that way, he has Kodesh, made them holy, made them separate from all the peoples around them. So then he can say to them, I'm holy, now be holy. And he can say to you, I'm holy, now be holy. Gird up your mind. Be sober in your thinking. Think about what you're doing and how you're behaving and be different than the world. Be separate from the world. Be holy because I'm holy. I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. If there is anyone, says Leviticus 20, verse 9, if there is anyone who curses his father or his mother, he shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood guiltness is upon him. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So all I'm trying to show you is that when Peter quotes that, be holy because I'm holy, he is quoting it within the context throughout the Levitical law of your behavior that needs to be different than the surrounding nations. Don't act like the surrounding nations. Act like the people of God who have been separated by God for God's exclusive use and God's exclusive purpose. So be holy because God is definitely not like this world. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, sir. But what's the alternative interpretation? I mean, I don't see how it could mean anything other than behavior. It has to. It has to be behavior, yeah. It it sounds as though you're saying some people misinterpret this language in Peter by making it mean something other than behavior. And what, what is it that they misinterpret? Be morally pure because I'm morally pure. They see it as God speaking of his own moral perfection. And so they attempt to convince themselves that they are somehow being morally perfect. And I'm saying that's an impossibility. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to set your mind completely on grace. Set your hope. Your eternal hope is completely set in grace. If you could achieve moral perfection, then you'd have to be saved on the basis of your moral perfection. Is that true? Also, there's a passage in Matthew about uh, be ye perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect, yeah. All of the commands from God are predicated on the fact that he knows us. He knows what we're like. The moment he gave Israel the law, he said to Moses, in the giving of it, he said, now when they don't do it, I'm going to curse them. Because he knew full well they weren't going to do it. The law is a series of commands that if you could be perfect, righteous all the time in your flesh, that's what it would look like. But he knew from the beginning you couldn't do it. So now if you have a perfectly knowledgeable God who has all knowledge, is there any way that he can give you a command like, be morally perfect, be completely pure in every thought, every deed, every action, 
be exactly like I am. Could he say that? Well, I, I would have to say, well, if he did, then no one's saved. But if we fix our mind on grace, if we fix our hope on grace, then we understand and recognize our own sinful estate and our need for grace. But that doesn't eliminate our desire to act better. And so he can say, I'm right, I'm holy, I'm different, I'm separate than the world. So now you be different, be separate, be unlike the world. I think that's the proper interpretation by the fact that, as I just demonstrated, everywhere in the Levitical law where God does say be holy, it's in the context of don't eat bugs or don't worship idols or it's, it's all behavior based. And so I am convinced that the proper understanding of what Peter's getting at and that what God was getting at in Leviticus is watch your behavior because you are now the people of God. Does that make sense? Okay. Long answer, short question. So now let's read right from verse 13. We're back in 1 Peter. Therefore, gird up your minds for action. Be sober. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to every man's work, well then conduct yourselves in fear, in reverence, during the time of your stay or the time of your sojourn. Now the NASB says during the time of your stay on earth. I don't like those extra words. Those extra words change the meaning. I think Peter, since he has just identified the fact that he's writing to the diaspora, he's writing to the scattered, those that are outside Jerusalem, he's saying while you're there among the Gentiles, watch your behavior during that sojourn, during that exodus that you're in. Because then he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile ways of life that you inherited from your forefathers. Can he be writing to Gentiles when he says things like that? The futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers? He's talking about the forefathers of Israel and the ways that they were trying to achieve their own righteousness by their works. But then it becomes even more obvious when he says, you were saved by the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So there's Peter's theology again. He's bookended it. He started it by saying, God foreknew you, God elected you, God chose you. Knowing that about yourselves and knowing that he has put his Holy Spirit inside you. 
knowing what Christ has accomplished in his salvation for you. Therefore, be sober, think differently, gird up your mind for action, and then live in a way where you are separate from the rest of the world. And then he brings it right back to because you've been redeemed. And you've been redeemed not with silver or gold that perishes, You've been redeemed with the very precious blood of Christ, who is a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And then he, with this magnificent oversight that Peter has of of the whole plan of God, he says, because Christ, the very one who saved you, whose blood you are saved through, was foreknown, foreordained, foreloved. He was decided before the foundation of the world. Before God did anything, he knew you were going to need a savior. And he knew what kind of people you were going to be like. And he knew the fall was coming. And he knew that sin was coming. And so he foreordained, he foreknew, he predestined Christ himself to come to the planet to spill his blood to save wretches like us. So fix your mind completely on that grace. Fix your hope completely on that grace. And having fixed your hope completely on that grace, live like it. Live like that's what God has done for you. I think I've told you before about something that my friend up in Michigan, who I haven't seen in many, many years, but my friend Kent Clark, not Clark Kent. (laughs) My friend Kent Clark up in Michigan. He went into a bank regularly. That's what the story was. He went into a bank, and and he was always a a well-dressed, good-looking man, and he was always very, very friendly to folks. And so he went to the same teller that he had usually gone to, and one day she said to him, you always seem upbeat. You always seem happy. What is it about you? And he said to her, I know who I am. I know where I've been, and I know where I'm going. That's why he's that way. Well, that's different than the world. He acted so different than the world that even the bank teller had to go, what is it with you? Well, I think that's what Peter is getting at. Let your behavior in this world be different than the world. Let the way that you present yourself, the things that you talk about, the things that you engage in, let it be separate. And let God get All the glory in everything that you do. That's why the Bible says everything your hand finds to do, do it as unto the Lord. Whatever you're doing, do it with that constant recognition that God has saved you and God has empowered you to do this thing, whatever it is. Recognize that the God of glory decided before the foundation of the world that he would send his son to die for you because the same way, look at this, this is just brilliant, this is just gorgeous in its symmetry, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world and verses 1 and 2 say, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The same God who foreknew Christ who predestined Christ to come be our Savior, knew who he was going to be the Savior for, and he foreknew us the same way that he foreknew his son. Wow! That gets gooderer and gooderer. That's gooderer. I mean, God who who knew his son intimately, whoever was with his son, who foreknew and foreloved his son, determined before the foundation of the world he would send his son to die for some sinners, and he determined which sinners that was going to be because he also foreknew Steve. 
It's amazing. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God. Do you remember Christ saying, you can read about it in John, I think it's John 14. uh, No man comes to the Father. But how? But by me. Okay, here's Peter saying the same thing. Through him, through Christ, we are believers in God. It is through Christ that we have come to believe in God. And yet there's nobody who comes to God except through Christ. So you can't get to God but through Christ, and you can't know God but through Christ. So it's all about Christ. It's all about grace. And it's all about the fact that he foreknew you and chose you and elected you since before the foundation of the world. There just is no other consistent theology throughout the Bible except that God gets all the majesty, all the glory, that God is doing exactly what he has pre-planned to do. And that ought to be your constant recognition and hope. You ought to know that and hope on that every day. Because sometimes life stinks. <laughs> wow, that got a reaction from a few folks. Because sometimes life is hard. Sometimes life is just grinding it out. But I guarantee you can get through it if you keep your hope fastened on the grace of the God who chose you before the foundation of the world and foreknew you the same way he foreknew his son. Is there any chance that he can lose you if he foreknew you the way he foreknows his son? If he foreknew you before the foundation of the world, wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life, and then killed his son for your sake, is there any way he's going to lose you? This is, as Peter said, inexpressible joy, which is why Micah refuses to express it. (laughs) I remember. I was here. We're nearly done. Through him you became believers in God. And God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So that your faith and your hope are in God. And since you have, now he goes right back to the imperative. Once again, he gave you the indicative. You believe because of God. You've been saved because of God. You hope because of God. But since you have this obedience to the truth, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, then fervently love one another from your heart. Notice how quickly Peter jumps from These magnificent concepts, the foreknowledge of God before the foundation of the world, the election of grace, keep your minds fully on grace, and therefore, because you're obedient children, and you've girded up your mind, and therefore, because you're sober in your thinking, therefore, love one another. That is all part of what it is to be holy because God is holy. Be separate, be different than the world in the way that you love one another. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And so Peter would be able to pick that concept up. And within the context of being holy and following after the sovereignty of a gracious and electing God, he could say, if you know that about yourself, if you're aware of that about yourself, love each other. 
Okay, so I'll use me as an example and I'll let you go home. Me, I'm sometimes kind of unlovable. Anybody else want to testify? About you? <laughs> well, <laughs> either about me or about somebody else. I'm just going to pick on Jeff just because I saw him. Let's say that Jeff is being particularly unlovable. Okay? I know it's hard to imagine, but let's say Jeff's being unlovable. Well, the Bible instructs me to love him because we share a common spirit. The spirit of God in me is in him. And so in those places where he might be unlovable, in those places where I might have something against him, where there might be a little friction, distance between us, I'm supposed to cross that distance and love him anyway. I'm supposed to put down my gloves and quit boxing with him because he's my brother and he's... And he's closer to me than, and he is, he actually is closer to me than much of my family is. And so I am to love him not because of him, but because of the God who chose him, who also chose me. Who put his spirit in him the same way he put his spirit in me. Who foreknew him the same way that he foreknew me. We share this common faith. And because of that, we love each other. I probably love him more than he loves me, but, but that's a different thing. We love each other based on the fact that we have this common faith, and that what is what Peter is getting at. We'll pick up next week, right at verse 23, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding word of God. So there is my Christmas message. I think it's a good Christmas message. It's good to know that God is on his throne even today and Christ is sitting at his right hand interceding for us because we were chosen and foreknown since before the foundation of the world. I can deal with the fact that there once upon a time was a babe in a manger because I absolutely love the fact that there is a sovereign in heaven who loves me. That's my favorite Christmas message. Are you with me on this? Yes. Am I by myself? No. Yes, sir. You had your hand up. Through the courtesy of the Navy Department, I spent 1958 Christmas in Tokyo. And uh, some of you may not know that in, in Japan they do celebrate Christmas. But there's no mention of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no preachers. There are no churches. There's just bright lights, drinking, and the giving of presents, which the Japanese are very good at. Incidentally, one of their best presents is chocolate-covered swarming things. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you get me for Christmas? Chocolate-covered swarming things. Yes. Okay, right, and you're absolutely right, and I'm glad that you said that. Yes, one of the meanings of holy is morally perfect, morally pure, sinless. So we can speak of the holiness of God in that context. 
But when God says, be holy because I'm holy, if you only think of that definition, it's going to lead you to despair because you're going to realize you can't be like that. And so I'm trying to show that God is not being inconsistent. He is simply saying, be different, be separate, because I am, and be like this. And I hope that that takes the weight of despair off you and shows you that he actually has a very reasonable expectation of you, which is, I've put my spirit in you, now act like it. That makes sense to me. Anything else? No? We're good? Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. James and Scott, say goodbye to yourselves. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.